It's a brief history of power with two white guys. I am Pastor Jonathan Fisk, and I have the Reverend Dr. Adam Coons here with me. And Adam, after all of the energy of the last couple of weeks, I woke up today and I'm like, what happened? <laughs> so why don't you just start there? Because I'm not even sure I'm qualified to be in this conversation anymore. Uh, I, you know, I, I haven't done anything evil that I'm aware of. Right, right, right. It's just, you know, I'm not sure how I can lead. I've, I've gotten to the point where uh, I believe the United States is a religion. And that worries me quite a bit. So help me here. Ooh, well, that's a good place to start because I think that there's always a resemblance between religion, the way that we use that as something having to do with the sacred and the way that people think about sacred things and politics. There's always a resemblance. So I think some Americans think that uh, American civil religion, so-called, is uniquely weird or uniquely deistic or something. And I think that civil religion is probably simply inevitable because when you're talking about what controls money and power and in the case of war or capital punishment or even just prison time, life and death, you're always talking about something that is an institutions, people, movements, structures that are dealing with the same sorts of weighty issues and life problems that religion does. Yeah, so, so, so how yeah. can a Christian be Caesar when Caesar is the Antichrist, right? So to, maybe that jumps too far too fast. But the way I see this is, is the, is the question, can soldiers be saved? Is the question... How does one acknowledge that my country thinks it is a god, and I don't, but I still mm. think it's my country, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, well, I think I think there's there's also a, a difference here that we have had a little bit of trouble talking about on this show, partly because when people think about America or being American, there has for a very long time been a heavy ideological component to that. Yeah. And part of what we're going to talk about today with the declining years of the Soviet Union is that that ideological component of being American may or may not even be accurate. That is one of the things that I'm going to say about the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s was that at that time, unless you were trying to publish enormous numbers of books, and have an enormous public profile, way bigger than <laughs> either of us has in American society, you could kind of openly disagree in daily life with the regime. <laughs> that is very difficult to do at a workplace for somebody that doesn't even have a social media account, let alone is a published author of some kind in modern day America. So if you don't want to go to the training where you're going to be told that there are 54 different genders, according to, you know, current Facebook settings, that's a problem. So, so you're implying that we are less free than, uh, than mother Russia during the Soviet era. Yeah. I, I, th and so, right. I am. And so one of the things that I'm saying is that that ideological component of being American, which is kind of communicated to us through both education and media is so dense that a lot of people have no conception of being in America. I don't even say being American apart from that ideology. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're saying 
time after time that's consistent over the episodes is that your way to figure out what your life is about and therefore what things like your local government and your state government and your federal government should be about if they're not are things that are much more concrete than you know whatever it means the American way or whatever the phrase is, American dream or melting pot or lots of phrases that when you dig into them too much, you're like, I'm not even sure, you know, like the guy that invented the term melting pot wasn't American. Right. right. This, this, this car here, is going to run. This used car is going to run like a gem. Uh, sir, <laughs> how did right, gems exactly. run? I didn't know gems exactly. ran at all. <laughs> and so, you know, you have to, you have to, especially when, the ideology is very obviously in conflict with your sense of what is right or wrong. So being American means you recognize freedom, which means that you recognize 54 genders because I get to determine my gender. That's freedom. If you can't agree with that ideology, you have to be able to revise for your own part what being American means along lines that are more natural. We talked about the politics of nature or reasonable. Reason is a good guide yeah, to yeah. a lot of things in this, in this regard. It makes me think about too, like right now, all the laity in our church body are mm -hmm. having to go through the questions a LCMS chaplain would go through before he would enter chaplaincy as a pastor. Sort of uh, issues about, so where am I going to draw the line with mm -hmm. knowing this is a religion and I'm just going to hold my nose and mm -hmm. uh, being concerned that I'm not going to be damned because I am... I'm too close to something quite dark. And that's mm -hmm. where conscience you know, really does come into play in this. And there is some, can we say, Christian freedom that can cut through a lot of it like a knife, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that it is simply exhausting and completely unnatural for all of life to be politicized in this way. And yeah, I, right, right. And I'm, I'm saying one of the chief differences between the Soviet Union or East Germany and us today is that daily life... I think partly because of communication technology and also therefore surveillance technology, daily life is far more politicized than yeah. daily life was for someone in 1978 in Russia, right. because the amount of both surveillance possible on the part of authorities who want you to wear a mask or allow gender neutral bathrooms or whatever, the, the, the capacities for surveillance are just a lot let's say well, better than is they every were every single person. Yeah. It, it's, right. it's the matrix and agent Smith. I mean, every pair of eyeballs can do you in just cause they feel like it and know how to use the system. Actually. Uh, I had to go through some training for my state with regard to various problems in the workplace. <clears throat> and what I learned mm -hmm. was that I'm glad I'm not my employer. That's what I learned. <laughs> wow. I could use that system if I had an evil anchor in for it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's so eyes everywhere and everyone's the judge. And if the judge gets the right hook in the loud noise and the loud noise already has a distance to go or a direction to go. Right. So then it's about, do I realize that I need to come out as transgender sooner than Bobby? So I run the pecking order in class, right? Who, who figures that one out? first? <laughs> right, right, right. And so I, you know, and, and that, that politicization of every part of life, I understand when people that don't want to, you know, read the books that I read or or even listen to the show when they <laughs> when they're when they're just like when they're just like tired and they're like, I hate how everything is politicized. I hate how masks are politicized. The problem is you're always going to get politicization when you get some realm of life that is up for debate hmm. and you see how constant communication and, and inundation by information and quote news 
all of that puts realms of life up for debate that were beforehand just givens. Like there are boys and there are girls. Okay. Well, the more information, I mean, the re that's, that's why the media, when it wants to open something up politically, begins to run stories and they'll probably use some bigger authority than themselves at first. So they'll say, scientists are saying that mm -hmm. by 2050, you know, bugs will be on European plates every day or something. What they're doing there is they're not, they're not just, I mean, sure, there might be somebody researching the nutritional value of this or that bug. The point there, the reason to run that story is to open something up that was beforehand just a given of life. You right. don't eat bugs. You don't eat bugs unless you're starving to death. Or you have, that's ethnic, not so you have ethnic cuisine in your area, right? So if that's this area in Europe where they're, they're talking about this, these are people who have food that go back, you know, a thousand years in tradition. And so, you know, you're, you're just – what they're doing is they're planting a seed for social I, revolution on a global level. And revolution is putting it way too nicely. It's, it's devolution. It's, it's unwinding or yeah. flattening, right, androgenizing, yeah. all those right. things. So, I mean, I think that some of the – the sense of being enclosed and of all of life being politicized is unavoidable, partly because of our regime's ideology, which I want to talk about in a second. But to just, you know, kind of tie up with a bow, something that we say a lot, it's also partly unavoidable because of communication technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use the smartphone, if you're going to have the Internet of Things present in your house, you're going to end up being not simply surveilled, but also advertised to and propagandized incessantly. Mm -hmm. That's in the nature of the technology. And you leave yourself open to that by using the technology. That's There's kind of no way around. So one of the questions I've been wrestling with, because I, I am firmly in the, in the both feet are in the world of, I have rejected the modern experiment. And yeah. the nice thing for this, if you haven't figured this out for yourself, Adam, is that you don't have to deal with Hegel ever again. You just forget him. <laughs> just forget him. He's just wrong. And, and it's proven itself, and you don't even have to listen anymore. But in that, what does it mean to reject modernism? As soon as I realized I wanted to do that as, as a concept, it's like, okay, does that mean I don't get electricity anymore? Like, if I'm going to be true to my philosophy, if I'm going to be the principled thinker, right, mm -hmm. can I use electricity? Or do I just mm -hmm. have to realize that electricity is, I don't know, witchcraft or something like that? Put it in a different category and rethink, at least, you know, reassess what the hypothesis of electricity is. What I like, though, what you're doing here is is kind of showing that this is a big question that isn't about substantial things. Uh, it is about social orders and communication. So electricity has done one thing to levels of communication, which I think is worth studying for myself. So that's why I'm like, I want to go back and look at where electricity impacted communication before the smartphone. But surely, as one who grew up before the smartphone, there mm -hmm. has been nothing that has changed as fast gah, as what that thing has done to our lives. We're looking at 12 right. years 12 yeah, years? Right, right. Wow. Right. I mean, sorry, I'm getting loud, but gee, what a thing. Yeah, and it's, it is hard to convey to people, even to oneself, how relatively quiet your brain could be. Oh, yeah. If you weren't yeah. near a radio or a TV. Yeah. Right? And so I think that, so in addition to that technological component, which is really, I think, has its own trajectory and changes in ways that are not being controlled by anyone specifically because people are inventive in ways that are both useful and not useful to this or that regime. In addition to that is, is something that I think provides the main point of contact with the Soviet stuff, which 
like China and Japan and also next week with East Germany, I'm talking about basically to give you a better perspective on things that are going on among us. So I, I first started thinking about the United States in terms of the late Soviet Union, by which I mean kind of post mid, like mid 1970s to the end of the Soviet Union, right? Which is 1991 officially. The, the main analogy, the first point of contact, and it, it goes deeper than this, is simply that I noticed how many of our elected leaders, elected, appointed, whatever, were extremely old, <laughs> which is not actually normal in American history. If you look at the generation of the people who prosecuted the revolution or who wrote the American Constitution, or even you look at the age of congressmen, the average age of congressmen in like the 1960s was much lower than it is today. Right. Teddy Roosevelt wasn't 78. No, he wasn't 78 years old. And I thought, why do we have so many very elderly people? I mean, people in their 80s. So this is not just about tenure in office. That's also insanely long at this point in American mm -hmm. history, mm -hmm. for most especially congressmen. But why is everyone so old? I mean, okay, I think... <laughs> I think in addition, you sound so prejudiced. Well, you, yeah, you yeah, awful I know. Being, ageist. That's what's I'm coming. I'm being next. ageist right now. <laughs> well, you know, whatever, wherever you think Trump's energy is coming from, oh, I think everyone oh. can admit whether it's a combination of substances and just natural energy or it's whatever. It's just the cheeseburger every day. Didn't you it's hear just, that? Yeah, it's, it's, just the, the, it's the That's McDonald's. All that it was. That's right. Yeah, he's such an American, right? <laughs> he just runs on McDonald's. I think everyone can admit that Trump is sort of an, an outlier among human beings. I mean, the guy has like not had a drop of liquor in decades. So he's kind of an unusual person. Right, right, right. Besides that, you can obviously see. And I mean, with Joe Biden, it, it feels like elder abuse sometimes when he's in public. But you can see it with others like Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein. They have been around forever, right? They just look confused. They do look confused. Now, the reason that I started thinking about this was because there was a little, there was a group of three or four years in the Soviet Union in the, in the early into the mid 1980s, where successively three quite elderly general secretaries of the Communist Party who were effectively in charge of the Soviet Union died in, in quick succession. Ooh, so power vacuum, right? Power so vacuum. If we lose right now, like in the next week and a half, Biden, Pelosi and Schumer, just natural causes. <laughs> what what happens well, <laughs> that's the point though right power vacuum okay power vacuum, okay and it causes well, chaos keep with your story i just want to show how quickly this can connect to wow that's a lot of chaos really fast in a system what happened back then you're the one that knows that right so the thing the thing that happens right away and is that one, one of the things you have to do to kind of profit from this is imagine that you don't know about the difference between democrats and republicans you you just know that there are different factions within American politics. That's all you know. What, because on, for, for the average person, the distinctions between the platform of the GOP and the platform of the Democratic Party are not that material to my daily life. Right. They, don't, they don't change like where my food comes from, generally it's not on a, not on a on an electoral quarterly basis or whatever, right? Like no, monetary no. policy is a long game. Sure, right. So for daily life, not a big deal. So if I'm a Soviet citizen in 1985 and uh, now Chernenko has died roughly 18 months earlier, Andropov died roughly a year before that, Brezhnev died. Hmm. I am wondering, not just, I do get the day off work when the president dies, the equivalent of the president dies. So that's great. But what I'm wondering is what comes next? 
And what happens with, with each of these successions, and I'm, I'm going to go into what the distinctions were internally between the guys, but what happens is the overall stability of the regime is kind of dropping each time someone mm-hmm. dies. Yeah, yeah. Reagan even made a joke about how am I supposed to negotiate with the Soviets if they're always dying on me? <laughs> you know, which is, which is a little tasteless. It's, he it also is. was it's himself. A little Trumpian. Yeah. Yeah. He also was himself really old for an American he president was, yes. when he took office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so the issue here is that what is that a regime might have a specific ideology, and just to introduce you to some of the distinctions is the guy in the middle of that sequence that you've probably never heard of, or if you have, you forgot about him, Yuri Andropov, was probably the one that was the best upholder of the Soviet regime. Brezhnev had become notably kind of engulfed in family troubles. His daughter was a total mess and it was making a mess of his private life. And Chernenko... Any laptops involved in that? No laptops involved <laughs> at the time, but a standard... It just sounds like with a, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's an echo. It, I mean, Another echo. having power and money is always a problem yeah. for people's families. Yeah, no question. it is. Truth. Right. So Brezhnev had had those problems. After Andropov, Chernenko was notably like not well at all when he took office and everybody knew it now so that's, I'm, a, I'm a kid of this ahead. era here so where's and all i remember is them making fun of the birthmark on his head in cartoons that's gorbachev, gorbachev. there we go and that's after chernenko so so okay okay we'll get there continue but yeah but 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 what's interesting about andropov is he spends his career in the party and in the kgb yeah so okay. When he finally comes to power in the early 80s, Andropov is thinking, we're going to save the Soviet regime. And I think notably, if you were a kid in the United States in, say, 1983. You didn't want that. You probably, you probably thought the Soviets, they're bad like yep. this. Yep. They're not free, you know. Yep. And notably, Andropov agreed with you. He was trying to solidify the Soviet regime, he realized that it had slipped, that commitment was not what it once had been, that also militarily and technologically, they were at least theoretically falling behind. Falling behind. Real quick again, so which one was the KGB? Was Andropov? Yeah, that's Andropov. Brezhnev comes before him. Brezhnev had been in since the late 60s. And Andropov would actually only have a not not that many months in office. And where in this timeline does the hunt for October take place? <laughs> <laughs> now you got you stumped me. I got nothing. Oh, what a great movie! Continue, please, though. So, no, so uh, what Andropov is trying to give the regime a better sense of itself. So he's you could call him maybe an orthodox communist, hmm. right? Hmm. He's not trying to change a whole lot. And he's trying to solidify the regime. He's nostalgic. Um, he is. And so I think, and, you know, if if people have trouble following this, I understand why. Andropov is, is one of your closer analogs within the history of the Soviet regime to Trump. That is, he's trying to prop up things that at the time, even his supporters have doubts about. Hmm. Right. Think about the rhetoric of make America great again. Trump's opponents don't like that because it indicates certain things about America's immediate past that they find racist or xenophobic or whatever. Trump's supporters 
don't feel the way about America that they were raised to feel, that's why they want it to be renewed. So there are lots of, there are, there are problems inherent even in the public marketing of how I talk about the way that the regime is going right now. And Andropov is similar to Trump in that sense, in that he doesn't get as long as he thought he was gonna get in power. And when he is in power, he doesn't have the ability to change the course of things that he thought maybe he would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. That, I see the connection there, and I want you to keep going. I just want to point out that then Trump supporters, in effect, connected to what I was saying earlier, were also looking for a renewal of the Holy Covenant of Promise, uh, which they felt had been broken by their priesthood. And uh, just it's, if you don't think yeah. that's possible, that's your problem, right? Like step outside your atheist box and just recognize there are other people who don't agree with you and they do worshipful things and uh, and see what happens uh, in this. Uh, well, what happened again is the covenant has not been renewed. So our, our, our Buffalo shaman again that continues to haunt my thoughts about this. Uh, he is the forerunner <laughs> yeah. of new covenants. Um, and so that just kind of goes undergirding this. How much do new covenants become a part of? Well, uh, the destabilization, destabilization and then uh, coming down the wall, right? It's going to come down the wall yeah. coming down. Yeah. I think, I think that what you're dealing with in this, this way in which government and religion resemble each other is that even if you don't want to be like full bore John Locke and say that governments are founded upon a social contract or Rousseau, there is an element of agreement and consent, even in a monarchy. That is, if there's one guy in charge, the masses agree that they're not going to like unilaterally murder him, right? So there, there, there is an element of trust or belief in any system of government. It could go under the name of honor or fear or reverence or a social contract, but it's the same dynamic of a sort of spiritual, that is non-physical, verbally and visually communicated agreement about how things are and how they need to run. Yeah, and so, but that's that's a theory about, this is good though, we could really divert on this, I'll try not to. That's a theory about how governance works and whether or not, I mean, I think I'm rejecting Locke then. So see you, Locke. Bye-bye. Disagree. Yeah. It's about a symbolic father. That's my argument. Well, I think that part of the incredulity of a lot of people about what happened on January 6th in our country involves one way, to, I think, to notice that this agreement or contract or covenant has broken down is that people are using really high-flown rhetoric, mm. right? So think of Senator Schumer talking about this, you know, sacred temple of democracy, <laughs> but they, they use very high flown rhetoric, but it has no credence. Mm -hmm. If something's actually sacred, then when you say it, the group that is your target audience will respond appropriately. If it's actually sacred, if you don't have to, as it were, evangelize them and convince them that your subject or the terms that you're using are sacred. If it is sacred, if the agreement is there in that society, in that polity, then when I use those terms, it will be sacred. Part of the problem that America has had for a long time, and in this way, we're going maybe faster, maybe because of technology, than the Soviet Union did, is that those terms have broken down. And there could be any number of causes for it. But 
what you have, I think, in any society that is ideologically, if not politically or economically or whatever other measure, that is ideologically collapsing, is that the terms continue to exist out there, but no one believes in them. No one even believes that they're operative. So this is something even deeper than, you know, three-fourths of Republicans don't believe that Joe Biden was legitimately Correct. elected. Correct. It's deeper than that. It's more like if, you know, the Communist Party of China claims that there's religious freedom in China, which the Chinese constitution as well as the Soviet constitution both said, everyone knows that's not real. When the former emperor of China flees and is crowned the emperor or the king of Manchuria by what was it the Japanese, mm-hmm. and, you know that he he was signaling that the world it was over. I mean, right. like you remember, you could right. go it again. No one's going to believe you. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, yeah, yeah, complexities collapse at a increasingly compounding speed. So what we're right. dealing with in this fragile system is things going wrong. Faster and faster. Now, I'm not going to say this is happening on a spiritual level, but I don't know. Uh, what I'm noticing is that more and more people that I engage with are increasingly unclear, uncertain, not knowing where next week, next month, next year is going to be. And mm-hmm. that kind of collapse uh, in terms of personal lives can only last so long before it spills out somewhere and some right. kind yeah. of uh, barbarity. Barbarity is what we're going to see. Um, so I'm with you. I think we just shifted. Yeah. I don't think we can shift back. I'd love to think we could, uh, but yeah. it's not, you know, a little conversation with the the heathen at the gates isn't always going to work out. So I I think that um, this is kind of my last thing on Andropov, and I I want to talk about Chernenko because I I think yeah, yeah. people people when they look at Chernenko they definitely see Biden similarities. But the last thing on Andropov is that the reason that he had this this program for governing, which he really did not have time to carry out is because as a KGB officer, he had been present or on duty, if not physically present. But he had been present, for instance, in Hungary in 1956, when the Hungarians revolted against the Communist Party and and almost successfully threw off and certainly did permanently change the nature of their communist regime, even Mm. though they didn't throw off communism altogether. What he had seen as a KGB officer stationed in Hungary was his equivalent in Hungary. Uh, I can't pronounce Hungarian to save my life. The equivalent of the KGB, those men were the first to be strung up from lampposts <laughs> in Budapest. He figured okay. that was going to happen. He read because about the French Revolution. Okay. He, what he had seen was that a regime that appears impregnable, if it does not actually have this sort of sacred agreement with the population that it governs, yeah. can be extremely powerful. And yet the next week in danger of being murdered in the street. Right. And the reason for that is not some sort of conscious, like the people have some sort of like they have like a boiling point, And then after that, now the regime is overthrown. It is part of what was scary for him was how unpredictable this was. Yeah. A month ago, these guys are running the country. They have information on practically everybody who matters. The next month they're dead. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think a little bit again, though, of the fear that the congressman displayed on on that. Oh, day, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like like yeah. they realized, oh, this isn't just far away. This isn't a joke. Right. This isn't, you know. Um, anyway, let's let's keep going, though, toward uh, Chernenko. Chernenko. Yeah. Well, I, does he I, I think well, does he there's got to be oh. like a, a, a meltdown nuclear plant that rhymes with his name or something. 
right? Well, it's it sounds like Chernobyl, but ah, Chernobyl, Chernobyl occurred it, within the first couple years of Gorbachev's tenure. Right, but it's right around the so, same time then. Okay, yeah, cool. Right around the same time, right? So that's um, I think that's eighty six. Chernenko dies in eighty five. It's so funny. I'm but, ashamed for not knowing that, and that you know that. But you know, God bless you, Adam. <laughs> Keep going. On your point of the the, the terror that the the congressman displayed really at the hands of the Buffalo guy and, and his crowd also goes along with, as we record this, the inauguration is tomorrow. They're not going to allow the dozens of thousands of national guard troops that they have summoned to DC to have ammunition and their weapons. And part of the reason for that wow. is that the national guard is suspiciously white male and conservative. Yeah. Right. So they, they do not feel that the National Guard, even though they're using them to defend themselves against, quote, domestic terrorism, which, right. as as I predicted before, and I, I, I feel like it's going to it's only picking up steam, domestic terrorism and, and also categorized as white nationalism right. will be the boogeyman de jour yeah, for yeah. foreseeable future. For a while. They're not going to let those people have ammo because they're worried about what they will do to the people who are being inaugurated. But it's so, going to be the people who are attacking the people who are being inaugurated that they're going to be trying to stop if it were to right. happen. And these men now are going to be the ones just thrown out there for who? Right. For who? Right. Some yeah, radical right. Yahoo. Exactly. Period. I don't care exactly. what side. Yeah. They're all radical Yahoo's on a far enough end. Yeah. Goodness. So what you're dealing with, I, th I mean, there are analogs to that that we'll discuss with East Germany next week. Oh, sure. But there is not quite an analog to that in the case of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union did not get to the point where it distrusted its own soldiers publicly to right. the same degree, right. anything like it. Okay. The The issue with Chernenko, really the, the only thing that's interesting about Chernenko, because he was by all, by all accounts kind of bumbling throughout his career, and he wanted to be in charge when Andropov was named, but Andropov, who uh, spoke several languages, read reportedly 600 pages a day. Wow. Which totally blows me out of the water. I feel like it's such an, like it's amateur hour by comparison, but. <laughs> I'll listen to Audible sometimes. <laughs> right, right. Chernenko finally got his chance when Andropov dies. Chernenko is sick when he gets appointed. Why does no one care? Because everyone knows that he's not really in charge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the notion that has been really floating around as a phrase longer than before Trump, but really became important during Trump deep state is I think a reality throughout Chernenko's tenure and even before. And that is the point at which a regime has someone publicly in charge who shows up, pins medals on chess, but does not at all matter. Yeah. Yeah. And that's always a time of instability for any country because it's really the transition. You have to think of it in European terms. It's, a, it's the point where you still have an absolute monarchy, but everyone knows the king doesn't matter anymore. Right, right, right. So like I said, the symbolic father's dead. You have no yes. symbolic father. Well, you have a kind of a zombie father. Yeah, but everyone yeah. who's an actual like father should be like that guy and a father. So it's me or them. You know, there's no yeah. way he can stand in my world as my symbol. So I have to find another. And, yeah. you know, if that's a religious reality and thanks be to God for that you know, epiphany this year, I really appreciated realizing how much trust I was putting in the presidency of the United States of America and how much I'm mm -hmm. not going to anymore. I'm going to give it to Jesus sure. instead. Sorry, I know it's just a secular show, but we live in a radical world. So please continue. 
Well, I think I think that when when that symbolic fatherhood collapses, there is no other option besides dissension among what is supposed to be a family. And you can tell that people were not ready for this because they're shocked at how much people disagree with each other or what people are calling for, like, you know, investigating the political allegiance of National Guard troops or <laughs> the tweet daily... I saw from AOC about how Senator yeah. Cruz needed to be basically tried. I thought that right. was pretty intense. Yeah. Or Madison Cawthorn needs to be put in Guantanamo. Uh, he just got elected to the House, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, when you're when you're at that level, we are it, it, we are talking to each other in ways that the Bolsheviks spoke to their enemies after they gained power in the Russian Revolution, <laughs> and that that is worrisome. And the Soviet Union by the 1980s did not treat people that way because they had they had learned after Stalin, Khrushchev was the first change in this regard, that if you are constantly at war with each other ideologically, you cannot run a country and you will destroy each other. And Stalin, in fact, I mean, the Soviet Union would get on their high horse in the war crimes trials after the Second World War in, with both the Germans and the Japanese. But the Soviets had killed approximately 10 million of their own people in the decade before they started the Second World War. <laughs> so this, they had learned, I think, by at least the 1950s that behaving the way that Americans are beginning to behave with each other now mm -hmm. is destructive on a level that no matter what your ideology, you are both unprepared for and mm -hmm. you do not want to see. I believe that is why Putin has been smirking for at least five or six years. I'm pretty sure he just realized, huh, I just watch. We did this yeah. already. <laughs> yeah, we did this already talking yeah. after they came to power. So you said the Bolsheviks were talking this way after coming to power. And what that makes me think is not that we're ahead of schedule in some way, but that we just haven't realized they've already come to power. And Trump again was a mirage, a smokescreen or a speed bump. I think the parallels break down in this way, because although we have people speaking that way, so uh, former, you know, Federal prosecutors talking about Madison Cawthorn needs to be thrown in Guantanamo, et cetera, et cetera, all this sort of thing. They speak that way. But when like Buffalo Man and his unarmed pals break into the building, you can see on their, I would point out, unmasked faces. <laughs> They're all really close, but they most of them weren't wearing masks. But in any case, they were they were legitimately terrified of what? So. The Bolsheviks were not, I mean, say what you will about the Bolsheviks. Let me just speak in kind of military history terms. They they were harder men than that. Well, that's okay. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this question I, might not be clearly connected, but I think it is. Has mm -hmm. has Buffalo Guy been arrested yet? Yeah, because uh, because of his complaints, the the federal the federal authorities that took him into custody are uh, going to honor his uh, strictly organic vegan diet. Okay. Well, that's, that's so that, I we guess know that's he's important. in custody. Yep. <laughs> so he did get arrested for something, though, right? So they at least have yeah. the government at least realizes that they have to arrest the guy that conquered them. Like, I wasn't sure if he was just back home kicking up, watching it all on YouTube, right? I mean, he's kind of a, yeah. a, a cult hero in terms of yeah. uh, meme ability. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think. One parallel that you can see with Bolshevism, so I'm not talking about Soviet Union 1980s, we're talking more like late 19-teens, early 1920s, is that 
people that get away with rioting are obviously in support of the regime that is there. So there's all kinds of rioting and public disorder, just like after the end of World War I in practically every country. But in Russia, the way that that shakes out is that Bolshevik rioting, public disorder, murder, et cetera, is excused or overlooked in the same way that you know BLM got approximately $10, $10 billion worth of corporate donations over the course of 2020, whereas you have one thing of, you know, one instance of public disorder from ostensibly Trump supporters, let's not get into exactly who was who and who got in and who was outside, but one instance of public disorder. And now we have 20,000 National Guard troops. We have domestic terrorism as our biggest problem, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So you, you can see that BLM and Antifa do work somewhat like street militias did in communist regimes after the First World you know, War. Where, you know where I see this really going then, too, though? It's like IRA and, and London a little bit. It, it's just we're on the same piece of land. You see that connection? <sighs> Does that make sense? I mean, that's... I can't see how they aren't making their own worst nightmare come to pass. I, I can't see how that's not what they're going to end up doing in this. Okay. Here's here's one of the big differences, because I, I have thought a lot about this. And just for I've the been... record, neither of us want anybody to get violent about this. No. We're white guys who'd prefer we talk it out. There you go. No. I mean, I just, I yeah, I would, I would just stay away from cities and, you know, I yeah, just right. want to be left You're alone, right? right? My, the thing that I, the thing that I've thought, because I've, because I've thought a lot about, should we do a show on the place that I have thought a lot about doing a show on is Germany after world war one, because we have similar levels of enormous societal dysfunction and the growth in like prostitution in Germany in the 19 teens and 1920s is very similar to like only fans. Yeah, yeah. So and and like the use of pornography and like the the levels of uh dysfunction in modern america are not analogous to russia after the first world war they're more analogous to germany after the first world war so things like decreasing life expectancy uh pornography as well as street violence the analog for us is not Russia in the 1920s. It's Germany in the 1920s. And, and here's where it really gets scary for me is that you're not going to be able to study that without seeing that someone who wrote a book called My Struggle was complaining about things that were valid. And the reason yeah. he came to power is because he fixed them. And then he did evil after that, right? Like, and, and But you have to reckon with the man. He's been a shadow. You know, he's, oh, he's bad. Um, well, he painted watercolor. Uh, was it bad too? Was the paint he touched demonic? Or uh, did he take advantage of something that we just want to be aware of uh, is coming our way? And uh, again, if good men aren't aware of it, then bad men will take advantage of it. Right. I th and I, I think looking at Hitler or the 1920s in Germany or anything in a, I would say, mythological or religious way hmm. as an absolute evil is not helpful for our future because it means that I, I have to talk about fellow Americans in these mythological terms, mm. right? And what that means is that some of them will end up being literal devils, okay? And that's how you get to these war, these total wars of destruction that both Soviet Russia and also Nazi Germany engaged in. It's because some group of people become literal devils. The way in which we are not like 1920s Germany is that America is a much, not only larger, right? Germany, 
landwise is about the size of Montana and has, but has the population density of New Jersey today. Okay. So it, there's less population in the 1920s. We are much larger. We're much more diverse in every sense. So if we are fracturing, and so we're speaking about 1919 and 19, early 1920s Germany, they're beginning to fracture. They have communist revolutions in several places. None of them succeeds long-term at that time. As that began to fracture, it was going in a million different directions. One of the things that I'm saying is not the same is that our people in ideological control, the people who have the power when there is one instance of a certain kind of disorder to call in 20,000 National Guard troops, those people are not the same kind of people that Hitler was either fighting in the streets or that the Bolsheviks were proving themselves to be as they took power. Bolshevik means minorities <laughs> because relative to the Mensheviks, they were not in power within the left of this of you know uh, revolutionary russia so if you don't have people who are willing to do those very hard things often in the streets in order to take or maintain power then that that is why i was as hopeful as i was in the last episode because i don't see america as actually governed by people capable of governing and i'm not saying governing like positively like oh they're going to be great it's going to be so good i just mean holding power i mean they're all like c-minus students so how good are they going to be at the end of the day at any of this and it just just apply that to like fixing your typos and turn the paper in and being on time like it, they have people they can pay to do this and at a certain level the bureaucracy like f does create a wall that other people can't get through but in terms of their ability yeah. to actually control you uh, yeah. in, a, in a place as large and wide as the United States of America is, the feds are not going to be able to do it. Uh, the state is very unlikely to do it. Your, your county and city state, yeah, that's where it's going to get real, I think. Yeah. Well, I think that in this way, someone like Chernenko in the Soviet Union or Biden in the United States uh, tells you something about the nature of the regime and what comes next. Because unless you're ruled by older people, that's a gerontocracy, is actually on purpose and has some sort of sacredness to it. Ancient Sparta was like that, right? Older men ran Sparta, and that's partly because they were seen as dispassionate and wise. That's not how it works in the United States. And in Sparta, it wasn't democratic. You got there by life experience and having proved yourself in battle. Yeah, I mean, wasn't it okay, kind of like, so yeah, you live through all the battles and then like you as Sparta, your decisions you're making are, do we go beat everybody or just hang out and not conquer them? And that's sort of like where you're at. That's a very different place than today where you would be making multitasking decisions every single instant. Ridiculous. That's, that's true. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not talking so much about technology as when you have rule by very elderly people in something that is a democracy or an oligarchy in the case of the Soviet Union, and, and probably in our case, let's be honest, that signals something different than simply rule by wise elders. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It sure. means that people who have neither responsibility nor a conception of what responsibility would be are in charge. No and that also game. means... That also means that the regime is therefore not actually operating, as we talked about with symbolic fatherhood, but I'm saying in term, not, not in terms of symbols or communication, but in terms of actual levers of power, is not being operated by the people who are publicly 
publicly and officially operating. That means that what comes next becomes up for grabs on every level. And in a case of, like the United States, this was my point by contrasting us with Germany in a place as large, as diverse, as unusual, as different from place to place as the US is, that multiplies the opportunities according to those differing levels and facets of diversity in every sense of the word. So what I'm seeing is not a future in which we're locked in and locked down by some sort of unitary authority that only grows in power because of like surveillance technology. It could be that they grow certain kinds of power, but if they're going to put the equivalent of Konstantin Chernenko in power, which is what's going to happen tomorrow as we record this, then we have thousands, if not millions of opportunities because what comes next is really completely up for grabs. The guy that comes after Chernenko, Gorbachev, is the last of his kind. Mm -hmm. He abolishes himself effectively. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he'll go on to basically make money off the West. How different is he from King... Um... I'm thinking of uh, Turkey now. Kind of Erdogan? abolishing yourself. Yeah, abolishing yourself is what he did too, in a sense, right? He he put in a democratic process and removed the monarchy, right? Uh, are you talking about Ataturk? You're talking yeah, about yeah, the yeah, yeah. Talking about, You're talking about, about Ataturk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Ataturk, Ataturk abolishes the Ottoman regime, but I mean, he he brings in a, a secular republic. So Ataturk does not abolish himself. He becomes sort of the George Washington of modern Turkey. Yeah, yeah. Now that... That myth has already collapsed, yeah, yeah. which is why Erdogan is just openly Islamist. Well, that's right? that's an example saying, where he abolished himself for a system that couldn't maintain itself, and then a new strongman came and took it. You know that it, yes, in that in that sense, Gorbachev functions as an unsustainable ideology. But the reason that that happened in the case of Turkey is a little bit different. Yeah, because, yeah, 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 yeah. Complexities will abound. Um, but okay, so so Gorbachev abolishes himself. What I remember then is is like this. I remember uh, I'm born 1978. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Return of the Jedi shows up somewhere in 1983. In that time, there are uh, United States gymnastics in which we usually but don't always beat the Russians and the East Germans. And then the uh, this goes over into like all all sports, but it's like gymnastics and ice skating most of the time because basketball is mm -hmm. not even a thing at this point internationally. And then I remember Reagan, he's just a guy and he does stuff like this and it's good in America. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, and then I remember Gorbachev and he had spaghetti on his head. It was spaghetti. It was spaghetti the cartoons told me he had on his head. And then I remember <sighs> uh, uh, Scorpions, the band, uh, blowing with the wind, the wind of change, down to Garkey Park where the wall is coming down. And I remember that. That's it. They never told me anything else. That's it. Nickelodeon was my historian, and that was on-the-ground footage. So, I mean, yeah. again, fill me in, man. Fill yeah. me in. Well, what happens is that you get a figure who had been kind of circling around power but had not been able to obtain it in Yeltsin. And part of Yeltsin's rise— and That's Yugoslavia that is, now, right? No, no, no. Yeltsin, Yeltsin starts as mayor of Moscow. Okay, okay. And then becomes the first president of the Russian Federation. At the risk the, of interrupting and frustrating everybody. So Boris Yeltsin, I have confused with this butcher of Yugoslavia who then loses power in Yugoslavia and ends up splitting into four after him. But he was you're like... Talking, you know what I'm talking are you about? talking about Milosevic? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Slobodan Milosevic. More in the 90s, right? Well, he's in the 90s and that would be Serbia or... Yeah, I think you're thinking of Milosevic, the guy who is the major 
power figure in communist yeah. Yugoslavia yeah, yeah. is Marshal Tito. Oh, Marshal Tito. That's interesting, too. Well, so you're right. I am thinking of Milosevic, and this you're is later it, yeah. in the timeline. <laughs> but again, I got yeah. big fuzzies up to this point. So you're helping me create my like well, initial uh, yeah, structure. And, and, and regardless of how you were supposed to feel on the basis of American media, everybody has big fuzzies about this. Because how much can we possibly know? about the political workings of a country with 11 time zones you know like (laughs) the i mean part of the part of the hilarity of all of this is the idea that elites have that once they set a certain process in motion so does gorbachev intend to impoverish his countrymen and decrease life expectancy throughout the 1990s for russia probably not i mean probably not right it wasn't like number one on the to-do list. No, no. He's not like, yes, wake up, call Reagan on phone, uh, destroy my own country. But in allowing the regime to collapse the way it does and allowing Yeltsin, who is, and this is where, I mean, politics really is personal. The feminists were right about that in a certain regard. Yeltsin's alcoholism really comes to matter in the 90s because he can't even govern himself let alone his country. And, and his and country one of reflects the, him. That's amazing because the alcoholism rises and it goes right there with it. Wow. Well, there you go. Right. And so his country will be a country that he's over theoretically throughout the 90s, but his country will be plundered economically throughout right. the 90s. Right. Because all of that stuff that was state controlled that, you know, you could like it or not, but the Communist Party was in control of it. You knew who the authority was. Now there's no authority. Right, right. And R- Russia turns into a casino. In Just the who 90s. can grab what as fast, yep. hold it, try you to be it. safe and legal from what you can see. Sounds like Iraq a little, and there was a little more barbarianism to push back right away in, in Iraq than there was back here. Yeah. So. So Yeltsin had the alcoholism. Did he then, it just kind of all fell apart. Nothing's going on. There's a young KGB guy who's already in this yeah, place, right? Right, 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 right. Do you want to yeah, drop him and, in here? And, and Putin's, Putin's career in the KGB begins in the 70s. But Putin is somewhat like Andropov in, in, in two ways. One is, as a KGB officer, he observes the fall of someone else's regime. Hmm. Right. So Putin is able to observe and Putin is fluent in German. He's able to observe how collapse goes down in East Germany before it happens, because you do have a time gap, which we'll go to East Germany God, next time. King you Putin. have a time gap between East Germany's fall and and the Soviet Union's fall. You're, I'm sure you're aware he has been reelected to like 2031 or 2032 or something like that. Did you hear that? You know, I mean, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I, you know, and that was all before I learned any of the Davis stuff. So I, you might yeah. be curious to find out how coincidental that uh, that next election is for, for King Putin the first, <laughs> or maybe his successor heir, right? As yeah, if, if he's right. wise enough to see, I'm going to get old and not be able to do this. Uh, he's got to have something in the works because if right. he's been doing this as an officer since the 70s, he's no spring chicken either here. No, no, no. I want to say Putin is probably slightly younger than Trump. Um, Putin is probably born in the fifties, if I remember correctly. So who's his heir apparent? Do you know, do you see that at all? It's not Medvedev. People thought that there are a couple different people, including the current mayor of Moscow, but that is, that's probably something for another time. I I want to do more research. Yeah. yeah. Are you familiar with the book? Once upon a time in Russia. I think it's called once upon a time in Russia. No. Um, I'll try to send you a link to it. I, it's, um, it tracks, not not Putin, but his one of his enemies, who then he's now dead, but a guy who lived through a lot of this stuff and like 
It's kind of a gangster. Mm-hmm. Kind of tracks his his mm, manipulation of the his mogulship of the media companies to fight against Putin out of basically personal reasons when he didn't ever yeah. have to. And just yeah, yeah, yeah. a really interesting story. So I'll try to remember okay. to get to that. Yeah. Link. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be good. So I, what we're looking at, I see as opportunity because Putin one, like Andropov sees how regimes fall Two, he also understands that he needs to be on the ground and dealing with people who are not necessarily with whom he's not necessarily in agreement, who may or may not be unsavory to him. And he also understands, I think, that what replaces, at least for ethnic Russians who are, you know, a majority in Russia, what replaces the Soviet Union for them is going to be Russian Orthodoxy. That the state has to be explicitly religious in some regard, in order to hold the people. But they can't have an atheist state. You can't have an atheist state. And I mean, being honest about it, the Soviet Union was not an atheist state. The Soviet Union was a state that professed belief in things like mankind, Marxist economic analysis. It had symbols. It had rituals. It had a myth concerning the Great Patriotic War, which, which Russia has actually continued to have concerning the Second World War reading the Second World War as being about Russian, not about being Soviet, which is kind of, we've gone in the opposite direction, right? So we're now reading the guys who charge Normandy, who are living inside a segregated army and go back to a segregated United States as (laughs) (laughs) anti-fascist. I mean, they were anti-German and they were anti-Japanese. I'm not sure that they were ideologically, you know, aligned with AOC. No. So we've kind of done the opposite of the Russians, where the Russians kind of took the ideology out of their Second World War, and we have put some of it back in when it probably wasn't there to begin with. But something that's maybe uh, a similarity that's a difference is that the Soviet Union and the United States, if they fracture, I would think would fracture in similar ways. And so Ukraine Mm -hmm. was a state in the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. Hungary was Mm -hmm. a state. Serbia was a state. That's the future you're talking about. That's a really good point because, and, and, and that is where things that were, let's say, suppressed in the Soviet Union come to the fore. Mm -hmm. So both things that the West would recognize as nationalism. So Kazakhstan, uh, instead of simply being a Soviet Republic, and being functionally run by Russians becomes more self-consciously Kazakh. But also the states, especially in European, the European part of the Soviet Union, their Russian pluralities or minorities become a big political problem. You know, the Russian speakers in the Ukraine or in Latvia become a problem for themselves and everybody else. In the Ukraine issue, there's still a fight going on over the territory for these kinds of reasons. And so I bring it up to say, I mean, what does that look like in our world? It's not going to be a one-to-one comparison, but you got to see that even four time zones is probably too big to hold together, at least the way we're thinking of it. Because I guess Russia does have still those time zones, but a lot of it's, it's, uh, what, under snow? (laughs) <laughs> right. I mean, it's not like those time zones are just. It's like Canada saying they're a really big country, right? Like, yeah, yeah you are. Sure. Right, right, right. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that we've been talking about on the Discord server that would be 
probably helpful for people to think about is that some categories that are really broad or big in modern America would be useless in the case of such a fracture. So the one that we were talking the most about is white. And that covers, uh, you know, whatever non-Hispanic whites, whatever that is. But you notice that those are kind of, there's nothing in those categories. It doesn't, it doesn't tell you how or why someone in Montpelier, Vermont would not at all agree with somebody from Belleville, Illinois about life. I disagree with my sister about stuff, you know, there you go. Right. (laughs) Would not have, would not, would not want or have the same state rituals or political symbols or religion agreement about what life should be like. So those fractures are not along lines that people probably are paying attention to right now. or currently maybe are analyzing in terms of like Democrats versus Republicans that obviously wouldn't matter that much if fracture. Well, I mean, let's just throw a complete curveball in the mix and pretend that like spiritual powers and proximities actually exist. And this is really breaking down due to demonic strongholds versus places where there is light as opposed to darkness. And it's all going to unfold over the next 500 years. Hey, it's a fun story. Go take it home with you. It's at least, uh, well, something you should consider given how wrong we've been about everything else. Yeah, That's where I'm at. Yeah. So do you anything else for this day or do you want to leave East Germany or leave it for East Germany next week? Yeah, we'll leave East Germany because the the things to be drawn from it are very different, partly because East Germany in ceasing to exist has to join something else. Hmm. So instead of dissolving into a variety of things the way the Soviet Union did and losing superpower status, it goes from being something unique into being sucked into something bigger than itself. And the way that people look back on it is also with much greater nostalgia than many people, I not bet everybody, they but do many. Because they rocked yeah. it at gymnastics, man. I mean, nobody, <laughs> even the yeah. Russians, I mean, they were so good. Uh, and so, yeah, East Germany pulled away. I, as a young kid, I'm like, how does a half a country be with the big countries and and beat them yeah. they are half a country right? and they really they pulled above their weight class it was an amazing yeah. thing and yet they were so evil because of the wall which i had a piece of i actually had a piece of the wall for a while um so it's just a it's such a weird nostalgic time for me too gen x i think it has mm-hmm. to be nickelodeon makes it so and but like then again Oh man, Neo and the Matrix. Get it out of my head. I don't want to pretend like it's it's even a real thing. So looking forward to Real East Germany next week with you. Yeah. And um yeah. Uh, Dr. Adam Kuntz, you can find him at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Otherwise, he tends, tends to hide, so you kind of have to go there to talk right. to him. You can consider that. I, I'm Pastor Jonathan Fisk. I'm easier to find on YouTube and whatnot, but you're probably not into that. You're just going to wait for the next episode, so until then, don't stick around. Go do something else, and eventually, I will find the button that stops the recording. 